Welcome to the workshop. The workshop is more than an adult Sunday school. The workshop is a systematic discipleship program for teens and adults, which takes place Sunday morning prior to the service. Our focus is to be building disciples that are grounded in the basic principles of the gospel for spiritual health and for service, and to be equipped to minister broadly to meet spiritual needs around them and to develop and use their particular giftedness for the good of Christ's church. We typically run three 10 to 12 week semesters per year in the fall, winter, and spring. And we look at having some kind of missions project during the summer. If you're interested in finding out more about the workshop, please feel free to contact our administrator at New West Community Church and you can find us on the web at newwestcommunitychurch.com. Thanks very much. Take care. yourself how would you describe yourself and what distinctives would you use this is a little deeper of a question than introduce yourself to the people at your table okay but how would you describe yourself and what distinctives would you use ready go you're all systematic theologians you know that because you're breaking it down into systems of thought or systems or categories interesting to me. Uh, I won't ask some of the other tables because in the interest of time, I want to get going. Um, but before we do get going, I want to pray because we haven't, we haven't opened up an order of prayer. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we could gather together. Father, I pray that as we work through this important aspect of who you are, Lord, I pray that it would spark interest in our desire to get to know you in a deeper way but also fuel our worship of you and our living for you and our speaking for you. Father, I pray that uh, you would help me to be clear, help me to do justice to this amazing attribute of you. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, Asaiety. To define it, we first start off with AC, right? Or, or ASE means from or by oneself. And when we relate it to God, we say that he is sufficient to himself. He is independent of anything. I'm not sure if anybody used that terminology of yourself, that you are depend, independent of anything. No, that's good. We don't have to unravel that now. <laughs> that's great. Okay. So essentially, Louis Burkhoff says this, that God has the ground of his existence in himself, such that he is not only independent in himself, but also causes everything to depend on him. You catch that? 
He's not only independent of everything, but he causes everything to be dependent upon him. It's amazing. It has some pretty significant implications for us. In Genesis 14, 19, it says, And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Now, if you remember last week, um, Pastor Paul, correct me if I'm wrong, but last week we talked about uh, the, uh, the ascension of importance. I'll label it that way, meaning that we start with the complex and we go to the simple. Right. Well, in this case, you can't be a possessor of something if you're not in control of it. Does this make sense? Possessor of heaven and earth. In Job 41, it says, who has given to me or who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Who is first given to God that I should repay him? It's also reflective in the name of God. In Exodus chapter 3, God said to Moses, I am who I am. You remember this, this conversation that Moses has with God. God wants to send him to Egypt. And he's, he's, Moses essentially says to God, well, who am I going to say who sent me? Like, I need to know. I need to have some kind of authoritative figure behind me. That when I go, that they're not just going to cast me out. God's answer to him is, I am who I am. That's, that's his essential nature. I am. Again, no one here defined themselves as a human being, did you? At your table. You, none of you said, well, I'm a human being. <laughs> we just take that for granted, right? Well, in essence, God is saying to Moses, I am the supreme being. Dr. Mount says this about the proper name of Yahweh, that it is the knowledge and use of the name implies personal and covenant relationship. The name pictures God as the one who exists and listen to this and or causes existence. That's important. That has implications. On your table, I've taken the liberty to photocopy a piece of what is called the London Baptist Confession of Faith. It was put together in 1689. And this is the beginning of the second chapter of that Confession of Faith. Read along with me. If you need more copies, I have more up here. The Lord our God is but one living and true God, whose substance is in and of himself. Infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. A most pure spirit, invisible without body, parts, or passions. We heard that last week. Who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. You catch that? 
most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and with all most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. And then at the bottom of your page, there, there are the scripture proofs that they used to devise this statement. Now, this 1689 confession uh, is essentially born out of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Okay, There's some, some words have been slightly changed, but it's, it's very close. And for us this morning, there's some important pieces in here for us to think through. Whose essence cannot be comprehended by anybody himself. But here we are talking about theology proper. <laughs> it's one of the things that Paul and I have talked about a lot. And he's asked me, how are you doing? And I'm like, ah, how do you even talk about the aseity of God? Right? Which, how, how far down the rabbit hole do I go? <laughs> how do we cover the aseity of God in 45 minutes? I'll give you a YouTube clip to R.C. Sproul. That'll do it. He does it in 55 minutes. Michael Reeves does it in, I think, 25, but that might be a little quick. But this is important. This has implications for us. The Sadi of God has implications for us. The fact that he is independent of everything and has caused everything to be dependent upon him, I'll say it again, has implications for everything in our life. This is what we mean by he is far above all. And like Paul said last week, and you'll hear me say it through these next couple of weeks, there is overlap in attributes. So although God, not although, so because God is simple and there are no parts, when we talk about his aseity, it's not separate from his simplicity. It's not like, it's not like a, a, one of those trivial pursuit wheels that you, you fit in the pieces as you go, Right? Some have said that the aseity of God is one of the hardest things to wrap your human mind around. And if this isn't too bad, wait till next week when we talk about the eternality of God. Pray for me. But there's implications for us when we think about, truly think about the aseity of God. You don't have this copy in front of you, but this is, this is uh, part two of chapter two. And I won't read it all, but I'll just, I'll just highlight a few things for you. Having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself. This may come as a shock to you, or you may already know this. This room's pretty smart this way. God doesn't need us. Doesn't need us. He didn't create us because he was malnutritioned in something. That has implications on your life. Is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which he hath made. He didn't need Adam. He didn't need the universe. He was outside of everything. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need my preaching, my teaching. He is full and independent in and of himself. 
There's nothing that I add to him. Nothing. Nothing you add to him. Think about that for 10 seconds. This is our immense God. At your table, I want you to answer this question as best you can. Take it apart if you wish. My beloved. How might the aseity of God affect our worship? You could use impact, effect. You could change the question. What I'm looking for is how does what we just talked about or your already prior knowledge of the aseity of God, how does it affect your worship? If it doesn't, if this is the first time you've ever thought about that, be transparent with your table and go, I've never thought about this before. It's okay. Ready? Go. Excellent. Thank you. All right. So I want to touch on a few things before we get to the next table talk piece. The safety of God and how it affects worship. Sacrifice and worship in the Old Testament. If I could boil it all down, which would be hard to do, but if I could boil it all down into, into a, a concise thought, the sacrifice and worship in the Old Testament was not to satiate God's hunger, but it was to symbolize atonement for sin. Let me say that again. It was not to satiate God's hunger, but it was to symbolically atone for sin. Sacrifice and worship in the New Testament, again, not to satiate God's hunger, but actually atone for sin through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can, we can look at, we can look at um, different contexts in the Old Testament. We can see, especially with Ezekiel, right, when he battles the prophets of Baal, right? And what are they, what are they trying to do? the prophets of Baal. They're trying to arouse their God. They sing. They have fire. They cut themselves. They sing louder. Sorry? Sorry, did I say Ezekiel? Yeah, good. Don't kick me out. Thank you. Did I say Ezekiel? I need some more coffee. You understood, Elijah. Good. The Holy Spirit took care of it then. Great. That's awesome. But we see that in the Old Testament, the, the worship of these little g gods included the idea of satiating their needs. Because if they could satiate the gods' needs, the gods would reciprocate. Right? We see this in Job, too. We see this in Jonah. We see it all through the Old Testament, except for the worship of the one true God. It wasn't about satiating his hunger. It wasn't satiating his needs. Because in his aseity, he has no need. Okay? And then in the New Testament, again, carried over, we can look at how the pagans worshipped in the New Testament. And a lot of it was about satiating the gods. Pleasing the gods, food, drink, sexual immorality, 
again, pleasing them and trying to get them to answer them, their call or to look on favor upon them as worshipers. And they had multiple gods to take care of multiple issues. And I love when Paul is in Athens and he says, you have all these, all these shrines, all these altars, but you, and you have one dedicated to the unknown God. Let me tell you about this God, who's my God, who is the only God. So sacrifice and worship in both the Old Testament and New Testament was not about satiating God's hunger or his need. Biblical worship is not like pagan worship. Because God has no needs. In fact, we, 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 we've said it here in this church that God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need it. And we're going to look at Psalm 50 in a few minutes. And um, by God's grace and willingness, I'll be preaching on Psalm 50 at Renfrew in about two hours. Um, and, and I've entitled that message, God Hates Religion. Yeah. Oh. I said that to my son last Saturday, and he goes, are you preaching at our church? I go, no. And he goes, oh, I want to so hear that just by the name of the title. I'm like, be careful. Psalm 50 is like a sledgehammer. Because what comes after Psalm 50 is Psalm 51. And David's confession of his sin and his brokenness before a God who is a saity. So pagan worship is all about satiating their gods, not our worship. So think about that even in your devotions and in your worship. It's not about satiating some need that God has. Now we could say, yes, he, he demands it. He loves it. He wants it. He desires his people to worship him. Yes, all of that's true. But do not replace that with a need. It's really important. Because it, right away, that sets up the distinction between creator and creation. And that's important. In Acts chapter 19, there's an interesting little section. Let's turn there for a minute. Acts chapter 19. I won't go into any kind of full exegesis of Acts 19. But it's interesting about the perspective of pagan worship. Now, Paul is in Ephesus. And there is a revival in Ephesus. It is awesome, this revival. I pray for a revival like this in New Westminster. That the tradespeople say, we are, we're worried. <laughs> because so many people are turning to God, they're not doing what we want them to do. So look, look at, with me at verse 24. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis or Diana, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Listen, brought no little business. That means that he was very successful and most likely very wealthy. He was most likely the head of a guild where he would not only make money off his own stuff, but people would pay him a royalty. It was his job, if he was head of the guild, it was his job to make sure that all the silversmiths 
did the things that they needed to do correctly. He had a very important role in that, in that uh, act of being a tradesperson, being a silversmith. Look what he says. These he gathered together, meaning other tradespeople and workmen in similar trades and said, man, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia and <laughs> almost all of Canada, I wish it would say. This Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may become, may come into disrepute, but look at, look at this, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. You see that he feared that if their trade got overturned, it would affect how they reflect their devotion to Artemis because they understood or practice that Artemis needed them to do this. That for the prominence of Artemis to remain in Ephesus, they needed to keep feeding her all this stuff. You catch that? God doesn't need that. God doesn't need that. That's one of the big differences. God doesn't need our worship. He wants it. He desires it. He even gives us rules to do it properly. But he doesn't need it. Artemis, unfortunately, that demon needed it. So, I was going to ask you this question. How might denying the aseity of God affect the declaration of the gospel? You can write that question down because I'm going to skip over this and get into a few more things that I wanted to share with you this morning. Let me offer this to you, that rejecting divine aseity undermines the basis of the doctrine of God for the gratuitousness of creation and salvation. Just as it jeopardizes our ultimate freedom from evil. Rejecting divine aseity undermines the basis of the doctrine of God for the gratuitousness of creation and salvation. How are we saved? By grace alone. Whose grace? God's grace. Huh? Yeah. Is that not gratuitous? Yeah. The earth that the earth that we're in. Yeah. In his aseity, he doesn't need us. In his aseity, he doesn't even need to save us because he's full in and of himself. In his aseity, he is perfectly just. He is perfectly holy. He has perfect wrath against sin. He hates sin. Is it not gratuitous for him to show grace to us as creatures who rebel against him? He doesn't need it. That's what I mean. This is why some... Pastors, preachers, theologians say that um, God has every right to allow us to go to hell. Every right. He's under no obligation. No obligation. Lynn.
Welcome. There's a, I just almost said there's a blank table up here. There's an empty table here. You can sit, sit wherever you want. That's great. Great to see you too. Great to see you. I just turned the heat down, brother. I'm, I'm boiling up here. Move. <laughs> Asadian sovereignty. Remember the three lenses we were going to use through this study? Asadian sovereignty. Genesis 1.1. Why is Asadian so important? Well, it, for me, it goes all the way back to the act of creation. What's it say in Genesis 1.1? In the beginning, who? God. What did he do? Great. Did he need to create? Does, does it say anywhere in the first chapter of Genesis that God needed to create the universe? Does it say anywhere in the first chapter of Genesis or even the whole Bible that he was lacking something? No. He created. And then again, we pick up in John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was who? Jesus. Well, the word, the son of God. And the word was with God and the word was God. So again, did God need anything? No, I keep hammering this home because it's so important. He didn't need anything. For those of you that have blue cards, can you read out your verse? Doesn't change. Doesn't change. So he was complete, full, independent in himself before the creation of the world. After the creation of the world, he didn't change. Nothing about creation changed him. It didn't add to him. It didn't complete anything about him. That's massively important. This is why creation is so important for us as Christians. That when the enemy undermines the biblical account of creation, it's attacking the very doctrine of who God is. And when our government turns around and says that our book is a myth, that should, that should ring a, a warning bell to Christians across the country. That our government is saying that this, this doesn't matter. It's an attack on the very nature and person of God. Because if God is not a satiety, then you don't know if you have assurance of salvation or not. We could go through every list in the systematic list of theology. And if there's no satiety of God, all of that stuff is up for grabs and in doubt. Am I passionate enough? Whew. You should come. Well, no, I didn't. Turn to Psalm 50. Psalm 50. Like I said, Lord willing, I'll be preaching from this in about an hour and a half. I'm warming myself up, actually. So in verse 7, hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, 
and all that moves in the field is mine. Listen to this. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. So even if God got hungry, he would never tell us. Because he doesn't need us. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Like the other pagans who they thought that their deities, that their gods, the demons thought, they thought that they actually ate the food that they brought in. God's asked, do I eat this flesh? Do I drink the blood? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the most high. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. God does not have a satiety. He cannot deliver you completely. If he is not independent of you, then he has to work with you. And you have to work with him to assure that your salvation is secure. That is false. That is false. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. I won't have you read off the cards that I gave you, those who have the pink cards. I'm sorry. We just don't have time. The Lord is independent in his mind, in his will, and in his power. And later on, we'll be talking about that as his attribute. The Lord is independent in his mind, in his will, and in his power. The Sadian covenant. See, the, the danger of getting into theology, of any kind of theology, but the danger of getting into theology proper is that it just becomes ideological and philosophical. And it doesn't, it doesn't have any application to our life. Or we, we fail to see the connection points to our Christian living, our life. But brothers and sisters, when we're here studying the attributes of God, especially the aseity of God, it has a deep theological impact on how you live. It does. Absolutely does. In Psalm 50, God is calling out to the righteous and he's, and he's bringing them to judgment in, this, in a sense of saying he doesn't want their sacrifice. It's not, he's not complaining about their sacrifice. In essence, they're doing it mechanically. I've called it a mechanically pious relationship. They show up, they go through the motions, and they hope it's good enough to satisfy God. And then they walk away. We see that all the time in the church today, do we not? People show up to church, they sing, they give. They hope they've done enough and they walk away. Mechanically pious. And what does God say to his people? Offer to me a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Allow me just two minutes to talk about that. The sacrifice of thanksgiving was about community. It wasn't a burnt offering that it was meant to take care of and, and to symbolically atone for sin. The thanksgiving, the sacrifice of thanksgiving was to be shared with the priest. So when, when you brought food to the altar, it was to be shared with the priest and you were to eat it with him there. And anything left over, you were allowed to eat the very next day. Some of these other sacrifices, you were not allowed to touch it after it was on the altar. 
you were allowed to have carryover, which meant that you, you were supposed to have people to your house to eat it all. Because if there was stuff left over, you would then throw it out after the second day. It was meant to be a fellowship time where you're gathering together to give thanks to the Lord God above for what he's done for you because he is God. Because he is ruler over everything, because he created everything, because he is a satiety. And the sacrifice of thanksgiving puts that in proper perspective. That's what God is calling his people to do in Psalm 50. In Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, it says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Did he have to do it? you've heard me say this time and time again, that back in the garden of Eden, he gave the mandate to Adam and Eve that if, if you eat of this, you will die. And we get all caught up in the spiritual aspect of that. And that's true. They did spiritually die, but they were also supposed to physically die. God had every right to take their life, but he didn't, but he didn't. Not a result of works that no one would boast. You see this? Not a result of works. God doesn't need your works. He wants you. He doesn't need your sacrifice. He wants you. Because he wants you to experience a covenant love relationship with him. That should blow our minds. That this big, powerful, immense, eternal God, who has a satiety, wants a relationship with you so much that he sent his one and only son to die on the cross for your sins. To actually atone for your sin. To please his own wrath. Finally, in Romans chapter 5, it says, But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen? I feel like I'm preaching. To wrap up, the existence of God is the foundation of all religion. The whole building totters if the foundation be out of course. This is Charnock. If we have not deliberate and right notions of it, we shall perform no worship, no service, yield no affection to him. Did you grab that? That if we're not working to understand who God really is, Charnock is saying, if we have not a deliberate forward action in understanding who God is, we shall perform no worship, no service, no affection to him. That's how important theology is, brothers and sisters. If there be not a God, all religion would be in vain. All religion would be in vain. This has implications and connections to our apologetics, to our handing out of tracts on Wednesdays. God is real. He is alive. He exists. And he is above everything. And he is dependent of everything. So I, I finish up with these two questions. How will this information inform your worship today you're going to go to worship in about a half an hour how is this going to affect your worship today and 
Just as importantly, how will the information in this class, this class inform your witness tomorrow? How will it inform your witness tomorrow? God doesn't want it. Sorry, he doesn't need it, but he wants it. I almost did it again. But he desires it. He desires to see his children do the things that he wants them to do.